And that's what I want. That's what I want to say. Like that. That to me indicates something that is deeply wrong. And like you need to look inside. Like if you get that angry and defensive about the just very notion of your child having to be exposed to a form to 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 a uh, a part of our history that is uncomfortable, such that you want to silence, silence that experience. Hello everyone, I am Bob Lingle of Off the Beaten Path Bookstore in Lakewood, New York, and this is the Weaponized Literacy Podcast. Over the past year, I've been fortunate to have the opportunity to speak with investigative reporters, social activists, astrophysicists, philosophers, military veterans, and just plain old writers. We discuss life, death, and all of the things that happen in between. Our goal is to use the power of the written word to create a better understanding of the world around us and the people that live in it. We do this by reading with purpose, and we invite you to join in our effort to weaponize literacy. Thanks for joining us tonight, Dax. Man, thank you so much for, for having me. You know, people should know that Bob and I, we connected on Instagram, you know, and it was just like a, one of those things we didn't necessarily plan, but once we made a connection, it felt like the right thing to do is be part of this conversation. So I'm grateful for you reaching out and I'm really excited to be here tonight. And thank you again. Um, I had read his book, um, Dax's book, a few months before it came out. I was reading it, taking notes and highlighting like I was going to um, have this conversation, not thinking it would happen. And Dax opened the door saying, hey, if you want to do a virtual event, reach out. So the rest yeah. is present, not history. That's right. Not history. <laughs> um, so your um, book of letters started with one letter um, that was written after the murder of George Floyd. Um, I encouraged people to read the letter beforehand. I sent it out in an email last night um, and shared it this morning. Um, I'm going to assume that people didn't do their homework because why, why would they? People are busy. Um, so walk us through the, your thought process of writing out that letter, what inspired it besides um, yeah. part of George Floyd, and were you surprised by its huge popularity? Yeah. Um, so I mean, I th I'll start with the last part, with the, the surprise part. Um, the answer to the question, I think, was is it, uh, undeniably yes. I mean, I couldn't have really imagined that people who I had no relationship to would find such uh, a personal connection to it. And I, and I do think that some of that, of course, was just the time period. I know we were at home, folks were looking for answers. And um, so some to some extent, it might have had the benefit of like, you know, that time period, but at the same time, I, I, I you know, you, it's almost, it was almost um, a little uncomfortable actually, to be quite honest, because, you know, you write something that actually is fundamentally, while there is an element, strong element of empathy and love, there is criticism there. And, it, and no, I should say a critique, not criticism, because I think it's a little bit different. There was a critique there of what I saw and what I thought was missing where I think there were some errors in a, in a, in a, in a sort of analysis and how the, the problems of race and racism are approached in particular relative to my, my white male friends. And so you never know, like if people are gonna just be pissed off that you write that kind of thing to them. And we live in a very polarized country right now. And, and there is this tendency, I think, among a lot of folks 
to take any kind of um, criticism as as a um, as a call out and as as a way to kind of put people put you put someone down. And I think that one can always expect defensiveness. And I thought I didn't really experience a ton of defensiveness. I experienced a ton of um, engagement, desire to learn, hunger, interest, inward in, introspection. And so that was really um, what a writer hopes that they're doing when they're sitting down and writing something of that nature, a letter that is, you know, obviously working in that form, the epistolary form is a, is a particular way of trying to communicate both to individuals in an in intimate way and into large groups of people. And so, yes, it was structured as a letter. And I did it as a letter in, in many ways because I, I find that that tool of, of specificity and generality, if you, could, if you can hit the right notes with it, there is um, something very special about it. And some of the writers, my favorite writers in my life, have figured out how to do it really well. You know, I think about Albert Camus' ability to do it um, in some of his work. Uh, I think about, obviously, James Baldwin's ability to do it. I think about, um, you know, books like um, Letters to a Young Poet, you know, even, you know, that, that I think, is a significant and symbolic kind of text. So I, I thought that the, the form could work. I think the form could engage, but I didn't. I wasn't sure if the content would land. And frankly, I didn't care. If I'm really honest, like I really didn't. It wasn't like I was writing it to make friends. I was writing it like, in a in a in a way that, and I think in a, through a series of experiences that I observed over my life, and I was just in many ways like fed up, you know, like fed up, pissed off, tired, and annoyed. Um, and yet, people didn't turn away from it. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's um, the rare occurrence that somebody stands up on their social media soapbox and it actually does start to make some sort of change, hopefully, or at least opens up a conversation where sure. instead of people um, just shutting down because they read something that they and I'm sure you experienced a bit of that. also. Yeah, 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 <laughs> um, but I think. There was so much going on last year and still going on now that it opens people are more open to change. I, we seem to be going on the tail um, end of the books that I had enjoyed selling last year. Um, mm. The frustration for me, because um, mm. we had t talked just before we went live, um, I had gone to Baltimore in January and there were speakers there and there. Um, how to be an anti-racist was a, a big discussion point. And I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, like I'm going to bring this book into the store and I'm going to promote it. And I like, I brought in like five copies just to like, that's a pretty standard. I would like to give this book a chance in a small <laughs> bookstore. Let's bring in five copies. And I it took me forever to so sell one. And mm -hmm. then I think I sent three of them back when we were getting shut down in mid-March. Cause I'm like, well, I'm like, I don't want to just sit on this inventory. Wow. But I know that. I could have probably sold 150 copies of that book. Yeah, so yeah. people were ready to experience that content. And I like I knew like the I try to be an optimist, but deep down I'm a pessimist. And yeah. I, I saw I'm like, well, I'm gonna bring these books in. I'm like, do I back order a bunch? Because eventually people are going to stop asking for right. them. Right. Um, and there it, it it's it's gone through that trend where people have stopped asking for them. I'm still bringing them in. Um, but mm -hmm. one thing, um, whenever I do these virtual events, 
it's some of it is intentional, but some of it I just kind of stumble upon things that connect with the book that I'm about to talk about. Yeah, I stumbled upon a movie that is also a book um, that I discovered at, during the credits, Best of Enemies. Um, that goes, and it's it's really it's a well done movie. It's kind of it's not a Disney movie, but it kind of Disney fies the experience uh, with <laughs> C.P. Ellis and Ann, Ann Atwater. C.P. Ellis was a former leader of the Klan. And Ann Atwater was kind of a civil rights activist in North Carolina. And it's, uh, they ended up having this experience where I am blanking on the word. It's like charrette. Um, And it's Mm -hmm. a specific kind of way to have a debate over an issue and come to some sort of conclusion. And during that, through the conversations that they had, C.P. Ellis left the clan and ended up becoming really good friends with Anne Atwater. Mm. So I'm excited mm. that um, this conversation, the conversation that your book opens up. Telling me something? What are you telling me, man? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you ever listened to Conan O'Brien needs a friend podcast, but uh, <laughs> it's my goal to just become friends with everyone at the end of these or during. I'm also not a clans member, so I, <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to tell you. So the next hour, you got to make me not be a clans member. <laughs> But the conversations that we can have just kind of foster empathy and, yeah. and understanding. Yeah. Um, yeah. One thing that I wanted to address, because it's kind of a been a talking point in the store when I'm telling customers about it, because mm. a large percentage of our customers are white women. So yeah. However, white male friends. Yeah. I'm curious what your thought process was in choosing white male. Um, and I also like I'm interested in the publishing process because I know frequently authors don't have the ability to have the final say on titles. And if that was yeah. a challenge for you. Um, I think for me, I want to be very clear. I mean, the book is it's not a tome. You know, it's a fairly lean text. I want to be clear about who my audience is and why. I think in some ways, and I do say this in the book, I think in some ways, um, because of the sort of structures of hierarchy in our society, the structures of wealth in our society, the structures of power in our society, direct conversations with white men about power, about authority, about their role and the role they can play get obscured. And I think quite often it's the case that white women kind of fall in the grenade for white men. You know, they kind of end up sort of being the ones who center, who like step up all the time and like are willing and their husbands or their brothers or their sisters or their sons or whatever um, opt out of the conversation. They just opt out of the conversation. Mm-hmm. And to me, I'm like, because a lot of my friends are those people and have historically been those people. They'll, they opt out of it by saying that's either like, how dare someone even think that I'm racist? Just the no- very notion that I might be harboring racism is offensive. But I'm like, do you look at our society? Mm-hmm. Are, you, are we living in the same world? Like, even if you think you're not consciously participating in it, you benefit from this. And in that case, to, to, to operate as if you have no role to play not even saying responsibility to the past, just role to play is, I think, um, you know, um, 
to me, it's disingenuous. It's in, it's in, it's it's in contradiction to the facts. So I wanted to write something that was specific, and I knew, and I wanted, and I and I do have found that other many people can find their way into the book. Any people can find their enjoy find their story in that book, but it is very much my intention to have a conversation with white men because I feel like if we are really going to move the needle, when we look at our histories in our society, when we have had social movements for change, it is usually white men who sort of decide when we're done with that conversation. You know, well, we're not going to fund that policy anymore, or we're not going. We're going to we're going to you know begin to sort of you know move in a different. It's just. That is that is how, and I and I, I know that pe people read that and they be like, well, that's kind of chauvinistic or that's patriarchal. But I'm like, you know, we also are having conversations around employment discrepancies, around income and around opportunity, and we look at Fortune 500 companies and we look at who sits on boards. And I'm like, yeah, white men are still very much disproportionately represented in this, the higher the higher echelons and rungs of power in our society. And so I wanted to have a conversation with the people I have known throughout my life, not to say that they are the most, you know, but there I've gone to schools with people who hold positional power. I've been deep and close relationship and friendship with friends who have positional power and authority. And I feel like to some extent my friends, not necessarily my friends, but, but the, the people I'm writing to think it's okay to just be cool with black guys or cool with people, but not really do anything. Mm -hmm. you know, like, oh, I, I'm, I'm cool with this person or I, we listen to the same music or we're both interested in the same cultural stuff. But but at the end of the day, we're still having very different lived experiences, you know. And, I, and I, so I wanted to challenge that to so your question that you asked about title. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've had a really fortunate experience with this book. My publisher was like, has in many ways like they obviously have their voice in, in a variety of aspects of the book. But this is my book. And this was a title that I chose and I felt like a no brainer. We played with a couple of things, but I was like, why would we go away from the thing that it is? You know, it's this was the letter that it was written. And we knew that. And I'm, I think everyone knows that, like, there was going to be people like, well, who's the target audience? And but I think, honestly, the message would have been mess. I think the message wouldn't have been as clear and it wouldn't have been as and I wouldn't have had the same level of. I think both urgency, specificity and sense of, I think, actually kind of relational authority to write that book if it was just more broad. Like I actually have relationships, a lot of close relationships with white men. So it was like much more natural for me to be just talking in each of these letters. I could be thinking about that's this one, this is that one, this is, we've had this conversation in pieces. So it wasn't something I had to conjure in that way. That makes a lot of sense. And it it has helped in as many times as we, I've had a, a female customer come up and just kind of look at the book and then put it back down and try to engage um, to make mm -hmm. success. There's been so many instances because we're in quite a bit of a vacation town. Um, yeah. So we always have different families coming through and it's um, dads in like 40s or 50s. And then they're teenage kids. And then their teenage daughter picks up the book like dad needs to get this book. So <laughs> and let's be clear. And let's be clear. It is actually my belief, though, that this book is also going to be bought by a lot of white women for their husbands and for mm -hmm. their brothers and for their sons. And that's actually happened because I don't I, I actually, first of all, know that in, in, in just in general, men don't read in the same. Their men's reading patterns or consumption patterns are different than women's in the, when it comes to particularly books. Um, 
you know, there's a there's a just different market for that. And so my sense was that in some ways, white women would encounter the title and be like this, you know, this could be for my, you know, and and they could be received differently in that way. Do I think that maybe a guy's going to pick it up on his own automatically? Maybe not. But it could be the case that somebody who loves him is like, I really want this person who I love and care about to be thinking about these issues in a way that I'm thinking about them. And because I do think I have encountered a number of white women who said to me, like, I'm trying to get my husband to be more engaged in this conversation, or I wish I could get my brother and more, more just think more just like in, in invested in understanding how it's, how it matters to them too. And like, so I think, I think that there's, there's a, there's a, there's, you know, I'm hoping that it's working in multiple ways and people are able to access it for different reasons, but ultimately it's a title and you've got to make choices. I think sometimes I think writers want to write to everybody and you want to write to everybody and you end up not writing to anybody. Mm-hmm. You write so broad, you write thin. You write so, you know, you write so wide that there's no depth there. And to me, what I think is that I'm being able to produce something that is, even though it's relatively short book, it's dense, it's deep, it's rich. The pages have weight to them. I debated so much about getting into this because it's just, um, it's one of those conversations that pop up and people make a big thing of it. Um, there's always arguments um, around race. I kind of put arguments and quotes in my note because it's the arguments are what Fox News viewers get riled up about. Um, mm. so last year, it was a lot about what people should be protesting about and how they should be protesting, whether or not they should be protesting. Um, mm. the, the item of the day now is critical race theory. Um, yeah. Have you, what's, what's your stance on just the, the idea of, of this debate? Um, you know, um, if you'll notice one of the sections in the book, it talks explicitly about um, a couple of texts. One of those texts is The Closing of the American Mind, which is a book written by Alan Bloom that came out in 1987, in which he essentially argues for, essentially argues that identity politics have ruined America and ruined young people. And we need to reassert uh, sort of Western uh, traditions around all manner of education in that this focus on identity, you know, in, in sort of in, in parentheses, people of color um, is actually a distraction. It actually is eroding American values. It's all in there. And this is 1987. It's all in this book was a massive bestseller. Um, I bring that up because and then within a few years, you heard President Bush one at the time you know, loosely quoting from the book, um, this word political correctness entered the modern conversation and that became like what critical race theory is now, like this sort of straw man argument that people were making that really wasn't, you know, that was both woven out of whole cloth itself and in many ways designed to um, activate white resentment. Um, And it was successful then. So when you ask me the question about critical race theory, I feel like what I try to do in my book is in my, use my lifetime and the, thing, the social, political, cultural movements in my lifetime that have, I think, shaped our consciousness, or at least the minimum influenced our consciousness, mine and yours, like my, um, 
in, in service of helping people recognize the ways in which we are often, um, you know, at, not at the mercy so much as, but we're, we're, we're in many ways being politicized and we're, and there's, there's a kind of uh, a way in which we get brought into these conversations, whether or not we care about them. So this critical race theory conversation right now is one that a year ago, we know most white Americans had no, cons no, no thought about, we're not concerned about, had no connection to. Um, but because there was already a growing resentment towards the racial justice movement, it, it landed at a right moment because it allowed for people to organize and allows people to organize this sort of sense of resentment around this movement that they perceive to be in many ways, taking attention away from them or taking resources away from them or in some ways undermining their idea of America. And I watched it and I'm just like somewhat amused. I'm like, this, this dog whistle thing works every single time. Mm -hmm. It works every single time. We have a history of it. It happened again. We can say it happened with the Southern strategy you know, in the, in the sort of Republican party, in the Democratic party, like there was a recognition, like, all right, we're gonna just, we're gonna just sort of like artfully build a sort of movement and foment a movement of white resentment towards people of color. It happened then. We can think about like, you know, I, I write about in the book, you know, even school desegregation, you know, the sort of way, if you look at some of the pictures of people who were, who were outraged about school desegregation in the 1950s and 1960s and look at the pictures of people who are outraged about critical race theory today, these are like looking at the same people. And that's what I wonder if people recognize. I'm like, this is, you You look like the person, you look like the person 50 years ago who didn't want black kids in the same school as your white children. And you will be telling me the same, you'll be the one who tells me that you don't, you're, you know, you don't have a racist bone in your body. And I'm not even sitting here saying that I don't have my own prejudices. I'm clear that I'm a human being and I'm absolutely fraught with prejudices just as much as anyone else's, but I'm at least gonna try to like reckon with history in such a way that I'm not gonna just fall prey so easily to whatever the latest, you know, sort of, um, sort of fomented, manufactured, ginned up sort of controversy around race and not act as if it is some, in some ways, you know, deceptively and deliberately deployed to get me upset and always upset with black people for being too loud, talking too much, not not being satisfied with whatever they got and trying to make sure. And like, it's like, it's like almost like, damn. You know, every time we try to like, just at least express our, our sense of sovereignty in this country as well, you get mad. Mm -hmm. And that's what, I'm, that's what I want to say. Like that, that to me indicates something that is deeply wrong. And like you need to look inside. Like if you get that angry and defensive about the just very notion of your child having to be exposed to a form, to, to, to a, uh, a part of our history that is uncomfortable, such that you want to silence, silence that experience. And in the book I write about, so to your very specific question about how do I engage and think about it, you know, I was the kid in the classroom and I write about being 14 years old, reading, reading books that were clearly had that clearly had very racialized moments that we didn't talk about. And so what it meant is you didn't care that I was sitting in the classroom and not getting what I needed. No one cared that I was being sort of 
conditioned in many ways to think that my job was to make life more comfortable for white people or that my history was a very sort of small part of the American story or that the Civil War was not about slavery. It was about, you know, states' rights. All the, I, had to, I had to go through the education. You don't care about that. So to me, there's a hypocrisy there. And so absolutely I engage with critical race theory. I do, I, I not to say that I wholesale like ascribe to everything that it has to say. And I don't think anybody does or needs to necessarily for at least to understand that it is important and it is important for everybody. We, um, our store and our community exists in a very, uh, very white rural um, community. And because of that, um, some of our leadership um, has taken an interesting stance on things. And our, I don't mind calling out our, our state senator um, is opposed to the idea of critical race theory because it's just going to cause more division um, between white and black kids. And it's going to, there was a, a specific customer that, that came in and I was telling, they seemed interested in the book. I was explaining what the book was and they said, oh, well, you know, you don't have to feel bad about who you are. I'm like yeah. that's not what I, <laughs> that's yeah. not at all what I'm saying, um, <laughs> but um, kind of the importance of teaching the the black experience. Like my education, I grew up um, south of Buffalo. Mm -hmm. um, to the extent <laughs> I wanted to um, very clearly state how not diverse our community was, I thought I had a black friend in. Mm -hmm third grade mm. turns out it was just very dark-skinned italian wow. <laughs> that was just my exposure of wow <laughs> wow, um, wow. So during that um elementary education you just kind of learn oh well america had slavery but then abraham lincoln came along and and freed the yeah. slaves um there was segregation but then martin luther king and some people came along and and, and they fixed it and yeah. now we're great and I feel like um, your book is addressing this period where yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm an, you're a Gen Xer, I'm an elder millennial. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I'm a younger Xer, so I'm like, yeah. a young Xer. <laughs> like I am the youngest of my siblings and the youngest of all of my cousins. So I am, I think I'm the only elder millennial and then everyone yes. else is Gen X. So yeah. I, I'm still on the target market here. Yeah, you <laughs> you're easy. really addressing this group of people who grew up in this period where for the most part, we were just taught like, Oh, well, you know, we used to be bad, but now we're great. Yeah. Um, and, and we're not great. <laughs> well, I mean, and that was intentional as well. Like I'm, I'm in, in another life, you know, life, another lifetime. We could like, I'm, and I know that there are people, the sociologists who are you know, offended by the very notion that this idea of generation should even exist in our society and think it's all a marketing ploy. I have, the, I happen to believe that there is some salience and some relevance to the notion that we have shared experiences over a particular period of our lives. Mm -hmm. Then there is a chance that those might have an impact on us and how we view and experience the world. You know, that's, I don't, I don't take it necessarily much farther than that. I am just, I'm a, I'm a, you know, I, I was really impacted, I think, several years ago when I started doing some investigative reporting and really got deep into exploring implicit bias and how, and I talk about that even in the book, how, how deeply held and um, unconsciously reflected upon a bias can be such that it, one could literally and genuinely live their lives without awareness of it until it's brought to their attention. And even then they would probably be in deep denial about it. So I'm, you know, some of it has to do with my own, um, 
sense of like how how people are socialized in a society like we're socialized through a number of mechanisms media like there's no reason that media would be has such a have such a um, significant and pervasive role in our lives if it were not the case that it has the ability to sh to to influence thought you know it wouldn't be the case that there was such a war for our attention you know conscious or otherwise if, if it didn't actually work it's like those people who don't they think they think that marketing doesn't work on them no, marketing doesn't work on me, you know. Like, yeah, it does. Yeah, works <laughs> on all of us, you know. And 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 likewise, and to that point, you know, if you grew up in an era, and as I write in the book, and because I have a law background, I'm somewhat I, I sort of latch onto legal cases, and think about legal cases as part of the story. If you're growing up in an America that is, um, you know, that is, and I think this is going to be true of the young people in school today, after there's the sort of legislation that's affecting their education. If you're growing up in America as I was in the 1970s and the 1980s, there were, you know, a series of court cases, um, Supreme Court cases that had tremendous um, material effect on our education, particularly if you were in a public school environment. You know, school busing decision, um, significant, huge decision in the 19, early 1970s. And these were, there were, you know, I write in the book about two in particular. One was about school busing and the other one was around um um, at equal funding for edu public education. And both of these were five to four decisions and the five being, you know, on the side of on the, on the side of the, the majority of, I think all of those being conservative judges who have been, uh, the, the bulk of which had been nominated by Richard Nixon. Um, and they had shifted the court, the Warren court, which everyone sort of understands is the court that in many ways spearheaded civil rights um, gains. They, they turned the ship around. These were the two decisions that that five to four decision that we're not going to equally fund schools. Mm. We're not going to fund public schools equally because that's just what we need to do. That has huge impact, has huge impact on the kinds of resources that are going to therefore be available to black kids, brown kids and white kids you know, and all and everyone else in between. Like it's going to have material impact. And likewise, a decision about, um, you know, about school desegregation and about school busing. You know what happened in Michigan? It was a Detroit case, a Michigan case, and they, they were trying to extend school uh, school busing into the nearby counties that white families were moving to in order to leave the city of Detroit. Right? This was a this was the story of that era, white flight. And so, what what, what policy papermakers were trying to do, what activists were trying to do, was like, all right, we know you're moving to the suburbs, so we should try to extend the school busing pro programs to these suburbs so that we can try to really live in, live into this integration idea. But we have people similar to we have today with critical race theory who fought it tooth and nail. And so what we have is your experience, hmm. right? What you have is an experience in which you grew up and you don't have anybody in your class that maybe could give you or share with you and you can't do the same to them. So it's not just that you can't get benefit of their experience, but they can't get the benefit of your experience. And that's a loss. To me, it's a huge loss. And that gets into the next question I had up, which also um, Nancy Ander Anderson put in. It's obvious how racism has affected black people, but you also state that it has affected white people. Um, can you elaborate what you mean by that? And you did, but if you could elaborate more. Sure. Um, I think about that question a lot because, you know, I write these three chapters in the book. One is called the culture of charity. One is called the culture of disbelief. And one is uh, the third is called the culture of expropriation. And what I argue is that each of those are manifestations of behaviors that I have seen in my life through the work that I have done 
that evoke the ways in which racism harms white people. So for chair, for one, when I think about charity, a lot of my, I worked in the nonprofit sector and I've done a lot of work, um, you know, in a, a number of cities, you know, whether on the fundraising side, the program side. And what I understand and experience is that often white people who are very well intentioned approach problems like education and like poverty, you know, like, you know, um, even social justice from a frame of, if we can just help one or two kids, then we can save a problem. Or we can say we can solve the problem. Or if, you know, if we can just give one kid a scholarship or doing something really great without really grappling with the deeper elements of systemic harm that have taken place in our society. And so it kind of does this in that, in that element, in that way, it, it has, in my view at least, a very warping impact on the way we conceive problems. And that is very harmful because you have a very unclear and un sort of um, unsophisticated analysis of the deeper social problems that we're dealing with. People aren't just poor because they didn't try hard enough. Mm -hmm. People are poor because they've been systemically excluded from and historically excluded from opportunity because their families couldn't get loans to get homes because their fathers were thrown in jail for the same thing that your father might have been pulled over for or arrested for, but didn't have to do time. That is actual systems problems. It's not like something that you can fix with some neoliberal solutions around like, you know, oh, we'll just do X, Y. So there's a, I think there's a kind of, and I call these like inchoate harms. Like they're not necessarily ones that, you know, there are harms that you could argue are policy things. Like there's like a, you could argue that there's like a policy that we have, that, that, that we have, in, in, that we have instigated or promulgated could have some material harm on white people. And we could, we could have that conversation, but I'm having more of a conversation around our relationship to our own humanity. Similarly with the culture of disbelief in the chapter I write about specifically in the criminal justice system is this notion that, you know, anytime, and we see it happening in juries all the time, which is why, as I've said a lot many times, we all had to sit with bated breath after this, at the Derek Chauvin trial, because none of us knew what the outcome was going to be when we should have all known what the outcome was mm -hmm. going to be. We all had to be so nervous because we couldn't be sure what the jury was going to do. And why is that? And the same reason why, you know, Breonna, you think about what happened to Breonna Taylor with the grand jury, and they're able to, even though you have these very clear facts in front of you about what happened, you will doubt a black person. Maybe he's not telling the truth. There's maybe more to the story here. He must have some other agenda, right? To me, that I think is actually evidence of some harm right there, because if there's really this deep un unwillingness to believe, to believe A, that I am an American like you, and that I have I have rights to this place to be here like you, and actually to have a voice in our decision, decision-making processes like you. If you think I'm a qualified or an American that can be, you know, that that who, whose voting rights can be at any given time taken away, whose freedom rights at any given time can be taken away, then that's part of it as well. This is a sickness. It's a sickness that says that somehow I am more than you, or I have more access to truth than you do. And therefore, whenever you tell me something, I can doubt it. So one of the things I did in the book throughout was I made sure to provide facts. Because I don't want people to come back to me and say, well, Dax, just, I don't know, Dax. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Are you sure about that? No, I actually have the case. I actually have, let's go read the article. And I do that intentionally because I know that a lot of my readers are gonna, are gonna have a certain skepticism about a lot of things they say. Now, I'm not saying you gotta believe everything I say, but I need, you need to understand, I need to appreciate that this is a constructed argument that I'm making. It's not just a passionate argument. I'm not just emotionally appealing to you, although I do that, 
I'm also trying to engage with you using the very system that you value, rationalism, logic, law, to show you the truth of my experience and of your experience. So these harms I say are, and I, and I, and I say that the bigger one is that if you can live and breathe in this society and move around and see the ways in which, and maybe it's because it's not in your immediate purview, but if you can see and experience and know that there are these vast levels of inequality, these vast inequities in our systems of justice and education, and you can be okay with it, then there's something wrong too. That means racism has harmed you. It has warped you in some way. If you can be okay with it, mm-hmm. that's what I'm getting at. People keep asking me, well, how did it harm people? If you were only woken up last year to what's going on, then that might mean you have been in some ways numbed to what is happening around you. And if you don't think that's a harm, then I can't help you. If you don't think it's like you're, if you, if you don't think not being able to access the, the, the sort of, with from an empathetic place, the, the pain, the, the sort of agony, and also just like the aspiration, the resilience of people who are Americans like you, who are humans like you, then I say like, that's that to me is indicative of something that's not okay. Mm-hmm. And um, sit with that for a moment. Um, <laughs> Thank you for the question, Nancy. I appreciate it. <laughs> um, I appreciate it, Nancy. Thank you for asking. Thank you for, for being here. There, as much as this is directed to kind of men around our age, um, mm-hmm. the conversations that the men our age can have with our kids um, is so important as well. And just for the lack of diversity that I grew up with. Um, mm-hmm. One thing that stuck in my mind, and I don't even know how old I was, but I was I was young, but it was just a very clear memory of a story that my dad told me um, when he was growing up. And he was born in 49, so it was probably like in the like mid to late 50s when it happened. He was walking down the sidewalk, and there was two black kids that were walking up the sidewalk. Mm-hmm. And he was with the siblings. His siblings are a bit less open-minded than my, my dad was. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know what exactly was exchanged, but the black kids moved to the other side of the street because mm-hmm. that was the expected thing for them to do. Um, and that just, my dad never forgot that moment. Mm-hmm. But glad that he kind of shared that with me because then decades wow. later, I also never forgot that moment. So I didn't have any... <laughs> real experience to any sort of diversity growing up. Um, but I had that one story that of like, oh, black people have a different experience in life than I do. Um, which you is, can imagine it sometimes can be that simple for, for a kid yeah. to, to see and identify with. I mean, it's funny, you know, my, my daughter is two years old and you know, she's, you know, watching YouTube and she's watching shows and I'm very keen on like what's available for her to to watch. I like watching, she watches a lot of shows with animals and, you know, um, but there are some other shows that she's really, that she watches in which I'm very, I'm, I'm observant of the, of how diversity is manifested in those experience, in those shows. And what does it, what does it do? Um, 
and how does it maybe influence and impact her? They say that, you know, at that age, they already have become aware of race. And I can absolutely attest to the fact that my mom, my, my daughter is aware, not of what it means, but she's aware of difference. So she's like, for instance, she has what she has a, um, I have, a, you know, a lot of my friends that come by the house here and there, you know, check out, say hi. Um, and several of them are white, you know, but when she'll see a random white guy in the park, she might say, oh, that's Uncle Mike, you know, Uncle Cop. And like, <laughs> And it's and it's I'm like, wow, where does that come from? You too. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I offer that to say that people are, I mean, because part of how I think, first of all, human beings learn, we learn through opposition. We learn through difference. You know, we learn what is one thing because of it's not being the other thing, you know. So I get so part of it's her alert. She's doing some she's her brain is starting to sort of organize things and trying to make sense of the world around her. She's creating a schema for herself. The, the thing that happens, though, is that when that schema gets laden with meaning. And then what I get concerned about is, like, for instance, if I watch these shows with her and I'm like, wow, there are no black fathers in any of these cartoons. Mm-hmm. Why can't you in a black? Why can't the cartoon just have some fathers of color? Like, you got to counteract the notion that there are so few of us. And no, so therefore, now, of course, she has me every day and I'm there as a representative. But I just imagine, like, those kinds of things have very subtle influences on on everyone. And so that education is happening from a young age, which is why having conversations, bold conversations, courageous conversations is one thing. And then your actions need to align with those, those conversations too. Your actions need to align to it. So it's not just don't do this, don't do that, try to, it's, this is, I'm going to lead through my life. And that's where I, I think that we all have some room to grow in sort of in leading through our lives, like what we believe and how we how we believe, um, yeah, and how we show up in the world. So the book, in, in many ways, it does sort of end with this very kind of um, I don't know if it's that's not a, I, I don't I, I end with this you know one of the things that I offer to people is like thinking about how to address these issues and challenges is that if we don't do it now, then our kids are going to have to do this because mm-hmm. our history has already shown that we will just have that we have these cycles. We have these cycles where this. This conversation, this is our, this is our challenge. And I know people would rather race not be the thing that people who don't want to talk about it, who think they just, we all just want to people, blah, blah, blah. I get all that. But if you look at our pattern over the last 400 years, this particular dynamic has continued to emerge time and time again. And until we fully engage with it and not just engage with it, do something about it, then we're gonna, our children are gonna have to just deal with it themselves 20, 30 years from now, because there'll be another conflagration, another social movement, another pattern, and they'll look back at us and they'll be like, why didn't y'all do anything about this? Yeah. Why did you leave the job undone? Which is what I would always look back at my parents and say, why did y'all leave the job undone? I know it's hard. Well, in prepping for this conversation um, over the last several weeks, I just, have thought about different experiences when I was a kid, um, different life experiences. One experience that I thought of as a kid that just um, didn't really hit me until this morning. And I, mm. the my family, my immediate family, the people I lived with, were were not guilty of this that I can recall um, to some extent. But the casual racist slurs that I would hear growing up, and like. It, I thought like I've always been aware of it, but it wasn't until like this morning that I was just getting ready for the day Mm -hmm. and just thinking about it. I'm like, wow, I'm like, 
how did like how did people think that, <laughs> that this was was okay? Like, and it's well, still the people think, that were doing it then are still still hold tight to those beliefs and are the ones that are fighting that. Oh, you know, we can't see. I'm colorblind. I don't see color. Yeah. Um, despite the words that I <laughs> use yeah. to, to reflect otherwise. Um, but also there's different things that I, it was just kind of a exercise of how would this have been different if I was black or like my dad um, talked about this last week for people that were watching, this will be <laughs> a rerun. Um, but my dad is a Vietnam veteran. When he was in Vietnam, he got involved in drugs and crack and, it was something that he struggled with. He relapsed mm. after being clean for like 17 years. Mm. Um, but during that, it, like he, um, they discovered that he was using when he was in the military and he mm. um, was sent home. Um, but I'm like, how would that experience have been different if he was black? And then in the nineties, he um, was using the, ended up getting arrested and mm. he was given the opportunity to like, roll over on, on his drug dealer. Um, and like, how would that experience been if he was black? Mm-hmm. Um, like he probably would have been either dead or in prison, mm-hmm. um, to share. Cause you shared an arrest story. I was also arrested. Um, mm-hmm. when I was in college, I was innocent. I, <laughs> I did do something dumb, but I did not do something illegal. <laughs> right. Right. Very um, different. Very different right? Yeah. <laughs> um, I'll share the story just cause it's, kind of comical, but scary. Also, um, I was a TV and film major in college. I was playing a police officer for a movie that we were shooting. I had picked up a BB gun, a little handheld BB gun. Um, I've never been a gun gun owner. That probably was part of it that I just, (laughs) (laughs) so we ended up, we were supposed to shoot outside that day. It was raining. Um, I was commuting from Fredonia to Buffalo. You don't know what that means, but it's like about 45 minutes hour drive. Mm-hmm. So we, the trip, the film was canceled. I was driving up. I had the gun on my passenger seat. I was just bored. I wasn't feeling well. I had the gun in my hand. I was just flicking the safety on and off, sitting on the seat. For me, it was like clicking a pen. I always yeah, have something yeah, in my hand. Yeah. yeah didn't realize that a truck driver was going to look down and see me and think that I was pointing the gun at him. Wow. This throughway was shut down. Fortunately, this is before social media. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was surrounded by police officers. I had yeah. a gun pointed in my face um, and I was thrown out of the vehicle and arrested. Which yeah. Understandable. I hold no ill will towards the police officers. They thought I was a lunatic. I was just an idiot. Um, but reflecting on that experience, one, like I had flashbacks from that for yeah. a long time. Like I would pass by a state trooper vehicle and then yeah. I'd lose 20 minutes as I my brain went back to that that moment. Right. Yeah. Um, but thinking back on that experience and the instances that, that we've seen time and again, if I was black, I would probably be dead. Like it's, it's pretty good really? likelihood <laughs> that if I had made a certain move just because of the color of my skin, like it's not definite, like not saying that the police officer was racist, but <laughs> just based on mm-hmm. statistics <laughs> as, as we like to hold on to, yeah. I probably wouldn't have made it out of that situation. Um, you had a similar experience, only you were much more innocent than I was. <laughs> and if you wanted to 
Yeah. Who else <laughs> should be in that contest? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I was funny. I was reluctant to write about any of the experiences that I've had because what I was not intending and don't want to do is to feel like is to be perceived as using my experiences as some, uh, again, an emotional appeal. So I was very, I'm always really reticent to, to like deploy the things that have happened in my relationship. First, for one reason, one reason being that my experience is pale in comparison to people I know, you know, who've actually had their lives taken completely from them, both, you know, in the, in the literal sense, but also just having been placed in jail. So I'm, I'm very mindful of, you know, my experiences have not, they've, whatever they've, for whatever they've been, I'm still here. I'm having this conversation with you. I have the fortune of being able to publish books and do my work in the world. Um, but that said, you know, um, the experience that I had, you know, being in law school and, 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 you know, facing and experiencing police brutality, and it wasn't the only time I've had it in my life. Um, and that, but that particular experience was so stark for me because in this, it was that it happened in broad daylight that I have distinct recollections of people walking by and sort of observing it and not engaging in any action around it, whether it was because they assumed that my friend and I had done something or just didn't want to get involved. Um, but just, I, rem I saw those images, I saw that. And so when you when you've been on the side of that, when you've been on the and then and then of course to be inside of a jail cell for multiple days, and then get taken to central booking, and you're inside of this this bullpen with hundreds of guys, then you're squished inside of another jail cell with about fifty, like all the shuffling around, and you start to see this system that's operating here. Like, oh, this is this is the modern day version of a plantation. They're just moving bodies through this thing right here. And all along the way, somebody's getting paid. Somebody's benefiting off of my misfortune. And it and there's a complete lack of empathy, total indifference. This sense that whatever, whether or not you are guilty or not is completely irrelevant. You're in. And when you're in, you're in your humanity is taken from you right away. And the, and the swiftness with which people can do that, and the ease with which it can be done is what I struggle. I, I, it, it is... It is disturbing in the sense that, you know, people and you can have that experience that you have and know that there will be a different outcome. I've had multiple conversations with my friends and they've had similar experiences, not to that exactly, but they've had experiences where they like, I know it would have been different. I know it would have been different. I know it would have been different. That to me tells you and tells me that this is not a one off that we have something that is going on that is systemic. If it's happening for you in Buffalo and this person here and this person here and this person here, but we don't wanna have a larger conversation about how this is emblematic of a sick society. We still wanna talk about it as, you know, this is an individual experience. This was just one bad apple cop. It was just like, and you hear people try to say, no, this is something endemic to the way we've organized our ideas about policing and law enforcement that we need to rethink. So there's of course a school of thought that sees policing as an extension of the slave patrols. And there's another school of thought that sees and particularly policing that emerged in the North as an extension of, or a way for you know, the wealthy and the rich to protect themselves from you know, this sort of growing swath of poverty. 
whatever you want to define it, it was an institution that was built and put in place to protect the interests of certain groups of people at the expense of other people. So this notion of we've adopted of law enforcement is one that's been tacked onto something that wasn't fundamentally about that. And so as long as we keep not dealing with the fact that that thing itself was never built in any way to design to have for you know for the purposes of serving all or protecting all but protecting and that's why i think last summer was so illustrative all the brouhaha about property well, as, as a student of the study of student of the law i can tell you that the the laws governing property indicate the value we place on property in our society relative to human life and people you place a lot of value on things. And so therefore it is natural and it is not surprising at all that people go get, you know, get lose their shit whenever this idea of a building being of a of a merch of a store being torched or whatever. Like they'll lose their shit but not have any compassion or consideration for a guy named Ahmad Aubrey who was running down the street, just going for a run, and somebody decided to shoot him and shoot him in the back. We don't have any, you'll sit there and like. Well, maybe he was, he'll go through a rationalization of that, but you won't do a rationalization of why somebody might get to a point that they need to, that they want to go and blow some shit up. So why are you willing to have sympathy for one, one instance, or at least trying to give, have an open mind, if you will, about one form of violence and you have a fixed mindset about another? I, if I can see that the common denominator here is race, and you can't see it, then we can't have an honest conversation. Mm-hmm. We just can't have an honest conversation. We're getting close to our hour, but I'm enjoying the conversation. <laughs> I wanted to get into um, one other aspect of this, um, the stress of being a representative of your race. Um, like going through my experiences, when like when I was arrested and standing on the side of the road, it wasn't my thought of, oh, people are going to think that it's just another crazy white guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but that is something that, that you feel pressure from. I mean, and, and it's funny. So, I, you know, in my work, I, I have an opportunity to work with a lot of companies who are trying to navigate this situation that we find ourselves in. And in many ways, it shows up in organizations as, you know, for however many years they've been around, they've never really thought about race. And therefore, what they find is that they have very few people of color, non-existent people of color in leadership. And now they're sort of doing some deeper investigation around why, what can be done. And, and of course, it's all very laudable. But one of the things I get to do is do some focus group work, get to talk to people inside and like try to develop qualitative and do some qualitative analysis work. And, it, and, it, and, I, and I remember more recently I was doing one for an organization and one of the employees, black, a black man, said, you know, what, what my colleagues don't understand is that I have to be perfect in this environment. I don't have the margin of error here. And whether or not that is real or not, it's in my head that I have to be perfect because if I don't do something or I don't show up in a way, then I will therefore become a representative of Black people more broadly. And it will affect your ability to trust someone who looks like me in the future. Right. So if I don't do an amazing, if I don't knock it out the park, then you ain't going to never give another one of us a chance because then you will use that as even whether consciously or unconsciously as as confirmation that this person is not qualified. 
they can't get the job done. And what I struggle with in that kind of within within that is what we have to what we have to recognize and deal with is the fact that we are always seen as a group as members of this group, and I embrace that. I love my blackness, but they don't have a choice in that matter in why in America that like I am. Whereas white people can choose to see themselves as individuals, except when we have moments like this around critical race theory, where there's something to organize resentment and sort of a sense of being under assault against. And then all of a sudden, white, you see white people organizing themselves. But outside of those instances, white people, I will say this, they'll say, they'll, when I talk to my, my wife, they're like, I'm Jewish, I'm Italian, I'm all these other things, I'm not white. Like white is not a definition that people automatically go to define themselves, except when it becomes necessary and appropriate to sort of use that identity in order to protect power, protect some interests. And I wanted people interrogate that, just interrogate that. So you will allow you, we wanna have an opportunity to be individuals too, but we don't have that luxury. We're not given that luxury, we're not afforded that luxury. So even in these kind of conversations with you, when I'm talking about a book like I've written, I have to be really conscious about like, okay, I got to make sure that I'm not like, you know, being too hard or too soft or just how to, I'm, I'm, I'm even talking to you, I'm talking to you and I'm Bob and I'm really enjoying this conversation, but I have to have a whole meta dialogue in my head. I'm over myself watching. How are you showing up right now, Dax? Are you laughing too much? You know, are you, are you being too hard? Like I have to do all these gymnastics because I'm imagining there's a white audience out there, Toni Morrison called it the white gaze, that is doing some interpretation of not only me as an individual, but of us as an entire group and making some you know, assessment of us. That's a, that is a lot to carry, yeah. You know? But I always say you know, it is not all a heavy burden too, man. Like it, I don't want people to read my book or have any sense that like, there's a lot of joy here. A lot of love in this experience and a lot of pride that we have in, that I have in my experience. And it's not, and even doing work that is defined as anti-racist is not all arduous. And it's definitely not about making white people feel bad. Mm-hmm. And that's what, to me, that's a, just such a, such a, a, a cop-out, you know, like a, a, such a very sort of, um, not even simplistic, not even superficial, just such a very kind of um, uninteresting and boring way of thinking about this work. You think all we care about is making you feel bad? Maybe we just want to be like liberated. Maybe we just want to be able to move about the world without having to be concerned with whether or not, you know, you're going to see me as a target. But you interpret it as me making you feel bad. Is feeling bad the same thing as living and dying? No, it's not. So if you feeling a little bad is that has more value and more weight than me feeling like I can live and breathe, then they got a problem. We go back to the harms, this idea of what harm is. Why I keep saying that there's a harm that's done to you too. And I'm using you as a sort of second yeah. person. I don't mean you. <laughs> I will be that representative. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, thank you um, so much for your time. I could keep chatting to you for a while, but I have three kids at home. Do you have it? Right. That's a cool one, man. Um, and, but if, is there anything that you'd like to add? Um, I, I just want to say, Bob, you know, um, you know, what you're doing in the world is really, really important. You know, bookstores, creating space for conversations like this for your audience to engage with someone like me, um, reaching out to have this conversation, reading the book. You know, I'm, you know, I, I appreciate that. 
And I just want you to keep it up. I know you're right. We might not be seeing the same levels of, of urgency around these issues right now, but that doesn't mean, you know, you shouldn't still keep trying to sell the book mm-hmm. or tell people about it. That's part of what the bookseller's job is. Bookseller isn't, if it's, if it's just a transactional thing where you're just going to sell whatever, sell whatever, you know, is going to be sold. then it's like, well, you could just, you may as well just phone it in. Part of your job and what you do, and I think you do very well, is you become an advocate for books that you think and believe are important. And so I just want to say thank you and salute you for your work, man. Thank you very much. Um, on the note of selling books, <laughs> um, letters to my white male friends, yeah. Max Devlin Ross, um, great story, great message. The question, I lo- really enjoy the questions that you ask because it did make me think. Um, I could have done an interview just by me answering your questions, <laughs> which I considered. Um, and I do just want to plug a couple of, we have, um, for if you're local to the area, one, pick up the book. It's available also on obpoobooks.com. If you're not from the area, because we occasionally have viewers from outside, ask for your independent bookstore to, to carry it. Um, we have book signings scheduled every Saturday throughout the summer. Um a lot of great local from Buffalo, Erie, Pennsylvania. Please show up for those. Check out our website, obpbooks.com. Click on events, and they're all listed there. Our next two uh, virtual conversations, which I love the bookstore, and having it is my favorite thing. If I could just do virtual author events or interviews with authors, I would also be extremely happy. Um, two events that we have coming up in August, Proof of Life by Daniel Levin. Um, Daniel Levin is basically James Bond, but instead of a gun, he uses a tape recorder. Um, he has a military background. He works for nonprofit organizations in the Middle East. Um, because of his skill set, he knows, I don't even know how many languages. Um, he is sometimes tasked with hostage negotiations. Um, and this book details 20 days that he spent trying to find a French citizen who was missing in Syria for, for months. Um, it's a lot of, um, it's that story, but it's also a reflection on Middle East relations. There's a lot of things about race relations. There's a lot packed into the book. Um, and I'm looking forward to that conversation. And then maps are lines we draw. Uh, Proof of Life, August 19th. Um, maps are lines we draw with Allison Kofeld will be August 25th. Um, this is a, convers- or a, a book about Allison's experience um, doing mission work in Haiti and the things that she learned about herself um, and the things she learned about Haitian culture. Um, both were going international in August. So um, hopefully uh, tune in for, for those events. Um, thank you, Dax, for your time. Love this conversation. Yeah, man. Thank you all for watching.